Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, and welcome to this new episode of New Books Network. My name is Joaquin Rivaya Martinez. I am an associate professor of history at Texas State University and will be the host of this interview. Today, we will be chatting with Paul Conrad about his book, The Apache Diaspora, Four Centuries of Displacement and Survival, which, has, which was published by um, the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. I am particularly glad to interview Paul as we share academic interests, and I have had the opportunity to follow his academic trajectory over the years since he was a graduate student. And I have to say that he has always proved to be a magnificent scholar and an exemplary colleague. Good morning from Austin, Texas, and welcome to New Books Network, Paul. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for being with us. Dr. Paul Conrad is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas at Arlington, where he teaches courses on Native American history and literature. His research focuses on indigenous people's confrontation with colonialism in North America across the long durée, with particular interest in questions of captivity, forced migration, and enslavement. He's also interested in collaborative, community-based interdisciplinary work. His research has been supported by grants and fellowships from organizations such as the McNeil Center for Early American Studies, the Phillips Fund for Native American Research, and the Clemens Center for Southwest Studies. His book, The Apache Diaspora, uh, on which we will be talking shortly, has recently obtained the Gaspar Perez de Villagra Award from the Historical Society of New Mexico. This award is presented annually on, uh, to the author of an outstanding publication in New Mexico or Southwest Borderlands history. Congratulations on the award, Paul. Oh, thank you. Tell us, um, to get this started, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Um, how you became a historian? If Whether there were any influential mentors that you had? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm originally from Utah. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's always interesting how people get interested in history, kind of what draws them to history. Um, I think for me, you know, looking back at, at my background, you know, Utah is a very interesting place um, in terms of um, being, you know, having a, a dominant group, um, but also significant 
minority groups um, and um, you know the cross-cultural relations in Utah are, are very interesting. And I think uh, when I was drawn to studying history in college, um, I was especially drawn to history by um, a particular professor I took a class with. Her name is uh, Brooke Larson. She's a historian of colonial Latin America and um, especially Bolivia. Um, and she really um, focused a lot in her teaching on you know, thinking about how people interact um, across cultures, thinking about what happens when people from very different cultural backgrounds interact with each other. Um, and I think that resonated with my own upbringing and uh, so um, really excited me and, and drew me to the study of history. Um, and then I went on from there to, to graduate school um, at UT Austin um, and here we are. Sounds good. So where does your interest in Native Americans and uh, in the issue of captivity and slavery come from? Sure. Um, so uh, in terms of my interest in Native American um, history, uh, you know, I, I am not Native myself, um, but I do, uh, that does, I think those interests do come from my personal and family background. Um, my, my grandparents um, moved to Utah from, from Oklahoma um, as as Southern Baptist home missionaries um, to the Navajo, um, they were uh, stationed at um, the Intermountain Indian Boarding School, um, which was a you know off reservation boarding school in Brigham City, Utah. Um, and it was quite common that you know different Protestant denominations would establish churches um, at these boarding school sites. You know, as part of trying to you know convert Native people to Christianity and so on. Um, and after the boarding school closed, my grandparents, um, uh, operated a Indian Baptist church <laughs> in Salt Lake city. And so I grew up kind of going, going to that church sometimes and around grandparents that even though they, they had been involved in the boarding school system, um, they were very, I think, critical of it and aware of its problems. Um, and, you know, they worked they, you know, weekly and, you know, throughout their lives with Native people, especially with, with Diné, with Navajo people. Um, and so anyway, when I got interested in history um, and, you know, I think researching Native American history um, was for me a part of better understanding my own background uh, and my own family's history as a part of these dynamics of colonialism and so on. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's really a part of where it came from. I also just, I, in studying history, became more and more convinced that in order to understand the history of the Americas, in order to understand North American history, US history, you know, we really have to look closely at, um, at the history of indigenous peoples. Um, so um, there were academic reasons why I was drawn to that, that history as well. All right. So tell us a little bit about the process of researching and writing uh, the Apache diaspora. What was it like? Yeah, so um, in retrospect, <laughs> I can trace the, the roots of the project in many ways to um, research I was doing um, as I was working on my master's degree. Um, and at the time, I was really, I, I had become really interested in, in presidios, in these military, Spanish military forts and the social dynamics around them. Um, so I'm trying to understand how, you know, um, soldiers, um, as well as, um, 
native people that interacted together around these sites? What was going on with them? Um, uh, what life was like um, at, at these outposts? Um, and in doing some of that work, I kept coming across references to um, to the displacement of native prisoners of war. Um, so um, a lot of that research was focused on the late 1700s, the late 18th century. And at that time, um, the Spanish had um, implemented a policy of deporting, um, deporting especially Apache prisoners of war um, with, uh, for various reasons. But you know, part of the idea was that if they were sent very far from their homelands, it would be very difficult for them to return, um, and um, that would help um, to um, uh, <laughs> that would that that would help uh, the security situation on the frontier. Um, so, um, in any of any event, I kept coming across these references, um, and at least at that time, uh, the the research and writing of the book took a long time, uh, and at least at that time, there there weren't a lot of publications on this history of native captives being forcibly removed far um, from their homelands in, in the Southwest. There had been a lot more work about dynamics of captivity kind of locally and regionally, and um, uh, especially the work of James Brooks. Uh, his book, Captives and Cousins, was one that I had read and was kind of fresh on my mind at the time I was doing my master's research. Um, so um, in coming across these references in the archives to native people being, being displaced, I realized as I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic that, that it seemed like there was something there and that we needed to better understand what was happening uh, with uh, native captivity and especially with this long, these long distance forced migrations that I could tell were going on, but um, that I didn't feel like I was finding really satisfying explanations for um, in the existing scholarship. Um, uh, then you were asking about the process in general. So that's kind of the roots. Uh, I'll keep the explanation of the larger process more succinct. Um, you know, I wrote a dissertation um, uh, looking at uh, the forced migration of native peoples out of the Southwest, especially Apache groups. Um, in the dissertation, I focused primarily on the Spanish colonial period, um, it really ending in the early 1800s, 18 teens. Um, and then um, eventually, after you know, I um, finished the dissertation and got a job and was teaching and was trying to figure out what, what to do in terms of revising it into a book, um, I decided to extend the chronology forward um, and to, to deal with the U.S., the Mexican and U.S. periods um, as well. And that involved a lot more research, um, especially in, in U.S. archives, to make sense of, of that part of the story. Mm-hmm. So what type of methodology did you use and what were the, the main sources that you utilized for your book? Yeah, um, so in terms of my, my methodology or approach, you know, one of, the, one of the ideas that really guided me um, was um, in trying to follow uh, people and their experiences to wherever they, they might lead me. Um, so, you know, when you're researching, you know, the, these dynamics of forced migration, it, it can't work to just look at New Mexico or to just look at Nueva Vizcaya in northern New Spain, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, it really involved trying to figure out how I could trace these moving people um, to, and figure out where they ended up and what happened to them. 
Um, and then to also think about not only the experiences of displaced people, but thinking about, okay, for, for their communities, for those that were not sent away, what did it mean to them to have to to lose these relatives? You know, what did it mean for them to um, to repeatedly face these kinds of forced migrations um, and you know lose kin to forced migration, but also then try to adapt and resist these kinds of imperial forced migrations back at home? Um, so that's in part. Eventually, you know, the word diaspora got used in the title, um, but really, I think what I'm describing in terms of the methodology is. Um, a focus on diaspora in the sense of following displaced people and then also understanding kind of what their displacement meant for the regions and communities um, in which they were uprooted from. Um, and uh, so to, to, to do that kind of work involved uh, research in a lot of different archives. Um, so I started with um, uh, my, my first major research trip was to... Um, the National Archives in Mexico City, the AGN. Um, uh, and um, then uh, I did work at um, different regional archives um, in Mexico. Um, at the time, this involved some, some research trips that in the end, you know, the work I did didn't end up in the book because they weren't fruitful. But as, as a part of trying to track people down, I had to... Um, go to some places where it ended up, there wasn't any records of native people having been sent there, but um, that's a part of the work of a historian, I think, is to, there's the right. moments where we find what we want, and then there's other moments in which we don't. Um, then I also uh, did work in Spain, especially at the um, Archivo de Indias in Sevilla. Um, and uh, then um, at, at, various archives, um, you know, in the U.S. Southwest, Northern Mexico, um, as well as the national, the U.S. National Archives um, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, the last thing I'll say quickly <laughs> is that, um, you know, one of the most interesting uh, kinds of sources that I found for the latter chapters of the book um, were unpublished um, autobiographical narratives that had been collected in the in the early 20th century by anthropologists who were doing um, this ethnographic work among Apache communities, trying, that was a period in which in anthropology, there was a lot of effort to try to salvage uh, the cultures of native people with the, you know, the belief at the time was that, you know, their their real culture was, was vanishing. Um, but as a part of that kind of work, anthropologists collected a lot of information, including narratives from uh, Apache people about their experiences of of um, being interned as prisoners of war by the United States. Um, so I was able to use those narratives to really help me provide an Apache perspective on um, their, their confrontations with the United States in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Your book covers a wide chronolo chronological span and uh, a vast territory. Why did you decide to adopt that framework? Yeah, so that's a that's a good good question. Um, so I think uh, you know it, it took me time to figure out that that's what the book was going to be. Um, there were moments in time, especially earlier, where I thought you know, especially with the interests of getting something done, <laughs> it could make it sense to focus in on a particular um, a, a particular period in which dynamics of captivity and forced migration were especially important. So, for example, 
for there was a period when I thought about uh, focusing on the late 1700s and early 1800s and you know, you know this period of Spanish deportations of Apache prisoners of war to um, the Caribbean, uh, especially to to Cuba. Um, but um, in part because of um, publications that came out, so there was a, a book um, uh, by Mark Santiago that came out about that period. I decided that my real contribution could be in looking at these these dynamics across the long term. So um, mm -hmm. it seemed like historians, scholars had examined particular moments in time. Um, so, you know, they had considered the slave trade that took many Apache people into mining towns like Paral uh, in northern New Spain in the 17th century. They had looked at, you know, that episode of Spanish deportations. They had looked at... Um, you know, to some extent at, um, uh, you know, Apache uh, Mexican relations. They had looked at this period in which the U.S. Uh, forcibly, uh, you know, uh, removes Apache, Chiricahua Apaches to Florida and Alabama and then to uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So kind of all of these individual episodes had be, been examined, but there hadn't been a, pro a book project that had really tried to make sense of them in their entirety. Uh, and so that's what I endeavored to do. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, we can talk more about um, what emerged, you know, in terms of what do we learn from uh, looking across that long term. Um, but in terms of just what I was, why I was motivated to do that, I think it was to try to create a more comprehensive picture of, uh, of Apache groups and their relations with outsiders, um, you know, in the context of colonialism. Mm -hmm. So before getting into the nuances of the book, uh, can you briefly tell our audience uh, who the Apaches from the title are and why you decided to use the lens of diaspora? Yeah, uh, so so that's a great uh, great question. Um, you know, some some listeners may not be aware of the fact that um, you know a lot of the tribal names that they're familiar with um, are what we call exonyms. They're um, mm -hmm. names ascribed to groups by outsiders. Um, and a lot of them uh, mean things like enemy. Um, so we should always think about, you know, not only the, the tribal names we're familiar with that tend to be these descriptions, but also then groups names for themselves in their own language. Um, so for Apache groups, the broadest term for themselves in their own language is um, this term inde, uh, which means, you know, um, uh, the people. Um, and, you know, Apache groups like, like some other um, tribal nations are very diverse. Um, so um, they, they share a, a, a common ancestral language, um, but um, they, you know, sp uh, speak, you know, dialects of that language in the present that vary in terms of how similar they are to each other. Um, historically, um, they tended to have a more localized sense of group belonging. So, you know, this, you know, how we divide us from them is very important. Who's an insider, who's an outsider. Um, and, you know, so really, you know, we can't speak of there having been one Apache nation or tribe, but really, you know, multiple groups that, you know, shared some cultural similarities. They recognized, um, some degrees of kinship across, um, across groups, um, um, but they often, in terms of making decisions, in terms of, you know, where they lived, um, who was most important in terms of sharing resources, um, they often had more localized sense of, of identity and belonging um, 
um, in those terms. Um, so in the present day, I'll just briefly say, so, um, you know, there's a lot of complexity in the past in terms of what Apache groups have existed, but I mean, the present day, um, you know, important Apache groups include uh, the Mescalero and Chiricahua, um, who um, uh, their reservation communities are at Mescalero Nation, New Mexico, as well as Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, there's a state recognized Lipan Apache band here in Texas. Um, there's uh, in um, uh, New Mexico, um, there's um, several uh, Western Apache nations um, at San Carlos. Um, there's also a Yavapai Apache nation. Um, mm -hmm. So um, anyway, those are uh, those groups are um, to various degrees, the groups um, that um, I'm talking about um, in the book. Um, uh, and uh, the latter half of the book really focuses more on uh, those that um, became known as Chiricahuas um, famously, you know, through leaders like Geronimo and Cochise and so on. Um, but mm -hmm. the earlier half of the book focuses on Apache groups more broadly um, and making sense of how histories of forced migration, captivity, diaspora um, influenced um the identities they developed as a group influenced their place of residence, the homelands they eventually came to occupy. Um, and I think that's why, so in terms of the focus on diaspora, the more I engaged in this research, the more I became convinced that um, diaspora is very important to understanding Apache histories. Um, and this is true for to various extents for other native groups as well. I don't think this is uniquely an Apache story. However, um, I do think it was particularly dynamics of captivity and forced migration of diaspora were particularly important um, in um, in Apache histories, uh, and so that's that's a, a lens, a, a history that I wanted to bring into the discussion to hopefully help I think us to better understand um, Apache peoples and their their histories. Mm -hmm. So, part one of your book titled uh, "Becoming Apache in Colonial North America." deals with the displacement and enslavement of Apaches by Spaniards and their indigenous allies in New Mexico and surrounding areas, roughly between the 16th century and the third quarter or so of the 18th century. How did Apaches enter captivity during that period? And how did it fare in captivity? Yeah, um, that, that's, a, that's a really, it's a really interesting um, question um, because I think one of the things that's interesting about that period and part of what I'm tracing um, in, in that section of the book is the various means through which Apache and other native people enter into captivity. Um, so um, you have um, certainly dynamics of slavery going on. So um, uh, in New Mexico, there are both native and uh, Hispanic you know, peoples that are going out and taking native captives very much with the idea of either um, putting them to work in their own households um, or um, taking them to other places where they can be sold um, at a profit. Um, and this is a really interesting history that, you know, a lot of scholars in recent um, years have examined. And they've, they've I think we're, we've learned over the last two decades, really, how significant the enslavement of Native people was um, in uh, the colonial Americas. Um, uh, so um, part of the way that Apache people, like other Native people, entered captivity was for these profit-driven um, slave trades. 
Um, but also, um, there are, are, are moments in time, and especially looking forward um, into um, the 18th century, in which um, taking Apache people captive um, is not primarily taking place with uh, you know, labor and profit in mind, but rather for imperial agendas, um, particularly to uh, for to improve security of colonial settlements um, and essentially, you know, to subjugate native people. So um, by the idea by the later 18th century is that um, the only way to um, subjugate Apache people, which, you know, by that time period, the Spanish, you know, look to their history and say, you know, across now several centuries, we haven't uh, been able to do this. Um, and really the way to do this, if we're going to be successful, might be that we have to, you know, remove Apache people from this landscape and send them somewhere else where we'll be more able to control them. Um, in central New Spain, central colonial Mexico, um, or even further away um, to um, the Caribbean. And so these, what we could think of as kind of state-driven or, you know, um, uh, you know, this state-driven captivities and forced migrations, deportations, I think, can be a useful word of thinking about them. Um, they also are a way in which Native people um, enter, enter captivity. Now, one of the interesting dynamics you ask, you know, how did captives fare? Um, and one of the interesting things is that while I think it's important to make sense of why Native people entered captivity in the first place and how their captors rationalized and understood what they were doing to captives. Um, a lot of times uh, in terms of captives experiences, um, you know, they were very, they were quite similar. So whether they had been captured for the purposes of being sold at a profit or they were captured by Spanish soldiers, you know, under imperial policies of deportation, in the end, they often faced similar circumstances, which were um, they ended up in a particular household or in a particular kind of workplace setting in which they were forced to work, um, you know, for years on end, um, uh, usually without pay, um, though there are some cases in which, um, you know, Apaches displaced from the Southwest were paid, you know, paid, paid some wages. Um, and in many of these settings, mortality was very high. Um, and life expectancy was low. Um, and, you know, so um, that's, that's also, I think, uh, a dynamic that I try to make clear um, in, in that section of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, in part two of the book, uh, titled Apache Nations and Empires, um, you emphasize the importance of kinship in Apache identity and uh, interpersonal relations, as well as the role of the, the Gota or the local group as a key organizing principle in a in traditional Apache society. And then you explore how Spaniards, then Mexicans and eventually Americans try to take advantage of of these of the Apache's strong king attachments through the systematic expatriation or deportation of prisoners. Tell us a little bit about Apache kinship and how uh, and about how the Spanish policy of deportation um, worked. How how did it come into being and what did it consist of? Yeah, uh, so th so that's a great question. So I I had um, you know briefly in uh, you know explaining you know Apache groups and you know how we should understand them. I had mentioned this idea that 
you know, their own sense of, of identity, uh, loyalty, um, you know, of, um, uh, is very much, it's very much tied to kinship and, and thinking about, you know, who am I related to? Who are we related to? Um, um, and, uh, so in the earlier period, so in, uh, uh, the first part of the book, um, one of the things that I write, write about is that, um, particularly for those interested in capturing Apache people for slave trades and, you know, these profit driven, um, uh, motivations, um, it was useful for them to generalize. Um, so there were a diversity of different groups that in the 17th century, the Spanish argue, this is, you know, these are Apaches, this Apache nation is very rebellious. Uh, it's refusing to submit to Spanish rule and uh, accept uh, Christianization. And therefore it's justified to capture um, and enslave members of, of that nation. Um, and in practice, you know, there were, you know, <laughs> uh, likely, you know, um, you know, Utes, um, uh, Wichita's, uh, Pawnees, uh, you know, members of various tribal nations who um, are captured and, and, and sent south into New Spain as Apaches. But later, um, so um, in, the, in the 18th century and then looking forward, um, particularly when you begin to see more of these state-driven deportations, um, for the, the Spanish and their predecessors to be successful, one of the things that I, I, I see them doing is they're, they're very much developing a more nuanced sense of Apache kinship networks, of Apache identities, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that in my master's research, I'd become very interested in these presidios, these military forts. And at sites like those, Spanish military officers are gaining a very intimate, you know, understanding of Apache people. They get to know them. They, they get to know their names. They get to know who they're related to. They come to understand that Apaches are divided um, by, um, they're not one nation, but rather various groups. Um, uh, and that the local group um, with which they reside, um, or in the Apache language, the Gota, is especially important. Um, and so, in order to try to um, subjugate Apache people, you know, from the Spanish perspective, to try to you know make peace on the frontier, um, gain security for their settlements, they begin to target specific Apache local groups and the leaders of those local groups. Um, and the way that this strategy works basically is that they go out and take relatives of these Apache leaders captive um, and use those captives as a bargaining chip, essentially, to try to get the Apache leaders to enter into an alliance, enter into an agreement with the Spanish that, you know, their relatives will be returned to them um, as long as they agree to um, make peace with the Spanish um, and aid them militarily against other Apache groups that are continuing um, to, to resist. Um, and, you know, in a way, I think this strategy is, um, is somewhat effective, you know, from the, from the Spanish perspective um, in that um, over the course of several decades, they are able um, to um, generate greater security for their settlements along the frontier as more and more Apache groups um, enter into these 
um, agreements, these alliances with the Spanish and around these military forts, um, this uh, what's called the Apaches de Paz program is established. So kind of the peaceful Apaches program uh, where, you know, you have um, a, 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 um, more cooperation um, and peaceful interactions um, between the Spanish um, and, and Apaches. So this uh, knowledge of Apache kinship um, and, and um, the localized identities uh, and loyalties of Apache groups is a key part of that, um, that policy and that program. Of course, from the Apache perspective, I'll just say briefly, um, that's a very destructive period um, in terms of their own history, where they're being uh, targeted in these campaigns, uh, their relatives are being take, take, taken captive, um, many of them are being deported and sent off before they can be recovered. Um, and, um, you know, it's you know, many hundreds of um, Apache people that are um, forcibly removed um, and sent off during that period. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. So um, the U.S. government put into practice similar strategies of displacement eventually. Um, since you mentioned the Apaches the Pass uh, program, can you tell us what, what the similarities and the differences were between the peaceful Apaches program designed by the Spanish and the reservation system implemented by the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question and, and was something that I, I wrestled with a lot and tried to make sense of in, uh, you know, after I finished my dissertation and after I decided finally that I needed to extend the chronology forward, I was, I, I was really interested um, in, in that question. And there's, you know, a historian that I'm indebted to on, on these issues, uh, Matthew Babcock, um, who's written a, a really great book about the Apaches de Paz program. Um, and, you know, in the latter, you know, kind of epilogue of his book, he does uh, talk about the re U.S. reservations and make some connections between the Apaches de Paz program and then U.S. reservations. Um, and, you know, so I would say there's there's certainly some similarities. Um, uh, and, you know, I think uh, it's interesting to think about why there's similarities. Um, and, you know, part of it, um, 
I think has to do with Apache diplomats, with Apache diplomacy. So um, it's, you know, Apaches and Spaniards that are negotiating this Apache de Paz program, um, which is very flexible in many ways. Um, So um, it's the principle of it is basically that the Spanish are um, providing Apaches with food and with rations. Um, as well as, um, especially with, with influential Apache leaders, they're giving them gifts of, of, of clothing, of uh, horses, of um, uh, even in some instances, houses. <laughs> um, and, you know, so in exchange for these resources, Apaches then are, are agreeing to, to not raid, to not attack Spanish settlements, and to, to aid uh, the Spanish in their own campaigns. Um, so it's fle- when I say it's flexible, what I mean by that is, while there were sometimes some efforts um, by the Spanish to keep, to make Apaches live in particular sites, in practice, it really did not, um, uh, it did not operate as a system in which there were bounded reservations. Um, so, it, you know, the, the Spanish did not go out and, you know, survey a reservation for Apaches and, you know, seek to militarily force them to stay on that on that site. Um, it was more of a kind of flexible relationship in which as long as each side kept their end of their bargain of the bargain, it worked 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 well. Um, and so in the US period, what I see you know uh, Apache's doing is in many ways trying to negotiate a similar system. So in diplomacy uh, with Americans, um, they um, you know are requesting similar things, right? So they're requesting um, that they be uh, granted certain resources um, and, you know, in exchange, they're willing to agree to not raid uh, Anglo-American settlements. Um, but but Apaches are very resistant to um, agreeing to be bounded on specific reservations. Um, there's a, a, an Apache leader, Cochise, who's um, who famously, you know, talked a lot about reservations as being like corrals. Like we don't want you to bound us up into a corral. Um, and, you know, so um, with that in mind, you know, I think there's similarities in terms of what Apaches are trying to negotiate with each power, um, with Spain, then with Mexico, then with the United States. But I do see a difference with U.S. run reservations and the earlier Apache de Paz program in terms of how much Anglo-Americans end up caring about borders. And to a greater extent than with the Apache de Paz program, Anglo-Americans do um, try to enforce reservation boundaries. Um, And it becomes very dangerous for Apache people to leave um, the boundaries of the reservations that are established. Um, If they leave um, reservations, they are subject to settler violence. and um, uh, it's, um, it's something that, uh, you know, the, the degree to which these reservations are mapped out and, board, you know, their, their borders are enforced um, is, is, is different than how it worked under the Apaches de Paz program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ends up becoming an important part of why, you know, so you have famously Apaches that are fleeing across the border into Mexico. Um, and that becomes a part of U.S. justification for rounding them up and forcibly removing them to Florida. Um, and a part of that is um, part of why Apaches are doing that is because 
they they can't safely leave reservations um, and within the U.S. Um, so that's a, a history I go into a lot of depth with in the book, uh, and I don't want to ramble on about it anymore now. Uh, <laughs> but it is, uh, I think, a difference um, between the U.S. and 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 earlier um, systems. Yeah, going back to the to the these long distance displacements. Um, can you compare the deportation patterns um, under the different colonial powers? Was there any significant difference between them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so um, I think the so the the argument that I make in the book um, is one that really stresses similarity, and part of the reason why I um, wanted to make that argument, um, you know, I think definitely you can it's important to go into nuances and they're not exactly the same. Uh, but I think that there's still a tendency um, to imagine that, uh, you know, Hispanic colonialism, so Spanish or Mexican strategies of governance related to indigenous peoples, uh, uh, you know, was significantly different from Anglo-American colonialism and, you know, uh, the ways in which Anglo-Americans interacted with indigenous peoples. And I think if you if you look at you know part of what Apache history shows us is that um, with certain indigenous groups, particularly those that were more more mobile, um, uh, those that were you know agricultural that were not kind of sedentary agricultural villagers, um, uh, there was really a lot of similarity and commonality across colonial regimes in that they all struggled with how to deal with them. They all struggled to subjugate them. And they end up, ended up employing very similar uh, strategies to try to control them. Um, periods of diplomacy followed by periods of, you know, attempts at, um, you know, the uh, at extermination or genocide, attempts at um, forced removal, uh, uh, you know, long distance deportation is a strategy of, you know, let's try to move them somewhere where, where we have more power and we'll, we'll finally be able to control them. Uh, the Spanish do that in taking Apaches to Cuba. The Anglo-Americans do that um, in taking um, Apaches to uh, what was an old Spanish fort <laughs> uh, in, uh, you know, Fort uh, at St. Augustine, Florida. Um, so, um, what I would just throw out, you know, kind of highlight to listeners today is that while there were differences, um, I think what we see is really a lot of similarities um, uh, across Spanish, Mexican, and Anglo-American regimes. And I think that that leads us to rethink some of our stereotypes of, you know, this idea. There's different stereotypes, I think, that are out there. One, you know, very influential one has been the Black legend, this idea that the Spanish were kind of unusually cruel um, uh, you know, in their um, in, enslavement and decimation of Native people. Um, another, you know, influential stereotype, I think, has been um, that uh, the Spanish, you know, sought to include Native people. Um, and, you know, it's a more kind of positive, rosy portrait uh, of uh, Spanish interactions with Native people. Um, but when we look at these, uh, the long durée, when we look at Spanish, Mexican, and Anglo regimes, I think some of those stereotypes are blown up because ultimately what we see is um, these colonial powers struggling to subjugate Apache people in very similar ways and devising similar, very destructive schemes 
uh, to try to control them that um, often backfire and fail. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot about what the Spanish did and what the Americans did. Let's move the, the attention now to the Apaches themselves. Mm -hmm. How did Apaches <clears throat> resist displacement and uh, to what extent were the deportations by the different colonial powers uh, complicated by this resistance? Yeah, um, that's a that's that's a great uh, question. So um, that I, I think when we look at, part of the argument I'm wanting to make is that understanding you know these diasporas, these forced migrations, really helps us understand Apache history in a new way because Apache peoples are repeatedly having to to deal with this threat um, of colonialism and the threat of being captured, uprooted. Uh, and so they devise various strategies to, to try to resist and maintain their own uh, self-governance. Um, uh, they, um, you know, flight is one important strategy. So, uh, you know, moving somewhere else. Uh, um, and, you know, in the 18th century, uh, we see um, Apache groups moving, you know, there's there's a diaspora, uh, really, of Apache groups um, you know, from places like uh, what's now Southern Colorado along the Arkansas River there, uh, further east um, and into the plains. Um, in, in that case, uh, what they're fleeing um, is, um, you know, captivity really at the hands of the Comanche uh, more than uh, the Spanish. Um, but that strategy of flight and regrouping somewhere else is one uh, resistance strategy I see. Um, another um, is... Um, to uh, participate um, in um, these dynamics, uh, you know, these slave trades or uh, forced migration campaigns. And that's a difficult history sometimes to talk about, but that's, that's one strategy that Native people developed as a means of, um, of trying to prevent the, cap the capture of their own relatives was, you know, to keep their people safe by aiding the Spanish in capturing other groups that you know, they, 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 that they were not related to or viewed um, as their enemies. Um, and so we see Apache groups um, participating in slave trades or forced migrations um, as, as well. Um, one of the most important strategies of resistance um, that I see is diplomacy. So where um, Apaches are trying to negotiate um, the release of their kin. Um, this is something, you know, there's a long history um, one of the most interesting sources that I came across were these lists um, that the Spanish or Mexicans or Americans created of the relatives that Apaches were demanding be returned to them. Um, and so Apache diplomats are going to colonial leaders and saying, "These you've captured these relatives. We want them back. Uh, we know their names. We know where you've taken them. Uh, and you know, in exchange, we will give you something. Um, so in these diplomatic entrees, sometimes it was that they offered to return captives that they had taken, um, which also I think alludes to another strategy of resistance, right? If you're being taken captive, take <laughs> the people that are taking you captive, captive, uh, and uh, you might be able to use those captives as, uh, as bargaining chips. Um, of course, the, the last thing that I'll mention is what Apaches are, are really most famous for, which is um, military resistance, right? Um, so, um, uh, and, you know, I think if we think about, you know, particularly in the context of U.S.-Apache relations, you know, these famous Apache leaders uh, like 
Mangas Coloradas or Cochise or, or Geronimo. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're complicated figures, some of them, in terms of what they were fighting for. Uh, but with some of them, what they were fighting for was an end to the capture and forced migration of their relatives um, or, you know, trying to obtain the release or return of their relatives. Um, so I think that's part of what I was trying to bring to understandings of Apache history is particularly in the 19th century, there's been a lot of focus on their martial skill, um, their strategy, their military strategies. Um, and I think if we look across the long term, um, part of the ways in which those skills were built uh, were as a part of resisting the frequent forced migration of their relatives and seeking to gain the return of their relatives. Um, and, you know, so really we have to, I think, understand, um, you know, those uh, military strategies of the, the Apaches and their long experience of diaspora and forced migration as being interconnected. So Paul, to what extent do you think the Apache story, this long durée story of, of deportations, um, so these stories that you tell in your book, are they unique to the Apache or to what extent do you think they reflect broader patterns in indigenous history? Yeah, so I think that um, they, they, they definitely reflect broader patterns. Um, you know, there's uh, a, you know, there's a phrase um, that I think I've, I've heard quite a bit among native people um, that uh, every tribe had its trail of tears. And, <laughs> you know, I think that that's true. Uh, if you look at most any tribal group, um, there's some, some period in their history in which they faced uh, a forced migration of some kind. Um, uh, and, you know, so I think that Apache history is illustrated, illustrates that broader, broader pattern. I think also the more we research dynamics of captivity and slavery and so on in the, in the Americas broadly, so not just North America, but South America as well, uh, we see more and more when we look at the, at the, at the evidence, you know, that, that this was, these kinds of patterns were, were, were very common. Um, at the same time, though, I will say that I, I, I do think that um, Apache groups were especially affected by these patterns. Um, and I think um, in, in, that, in saying that, I think we could, I think there's a few reasons for that. One is um, that Apache homelands are, their traditional homelands are in this area where we see uh, efforts by multiple colonizing powers over time to control that area and to control Apache people. Um, and so part of why, you know, looking across centuries, Apaches face this over and over again is because they're dealing with the Spanish, then they're dealing with Mexico, they're dealing with, um, you know, other powers like the Comanche or the, the French even, or, you know, they're dealing with then uh, the U.S. Um, and so the territories in which Apaches, you know, called home were territories in which multiple colonizing or, you know, imperial powers were trying to control them um, over time. I think the other factor, which I had mentioned before, is also relevant in that is it that is that, you know, Apache groups were, um, did have a long history of resisting colonization in a way that was different than some other groups. So, you know, their, their efforts to maintain, uh, you know, uh, their autonomy through mobility, um, through, um, through violence and so on is a different strategy than 
say the strategy taken by the Pueblos of New Mexico um, or some other groups where that developed, I think what we can think of more as strategies of appeasement, appeasement as part of the colonial system rather than trying to stay outside of it. Um, and by trying to stay outside of it, you know, that can sound great. You know, Apaches, they were independent, you know, they resisted to the bitter end. Um, but one of the downsides of that strategy was repeatedly facing captivity, forced migration, deportations, and so on. Um, so mm -hmm. Apache independence also came um, at a significant cost. Um, so, uh, so all of that is to say, broader patterns, I think definitely we see, I think in, through Apache history, we can see um, that diaspora is a really important theme, I think in Native American history more broadly. Um, at the same time though, I do think we see um, some distinctions and some unique aspects of Apache history where I think they were uniquely affected um, in some ways. <laughs> so what is the legacy of the of this Apache diaspora or diasporas? Are, are there any long-term effects of the displacement of these Inde or Apache peoples that their descendants still feel today? Absolutely. Um, so I think that um, you know, we can think of this both from the vantage point of displaced people, as well as then, you know, these communities who, you know, they have ancestors that were, you know, displaced at different points in time or, and, um, you know, the history of diaspora's influence, even where they, their reservation communities are today. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting legacies, I think, for, um, you know, in day or Apache people in the past that were uprooted and taken into colonial societies is that um, there's some interest in the present um, among people in, in, in trying to recover that cultural ancestry. You know, so I've talked to people today, um, you know, in the present who identify as being um, the descendants of Apaches taken to Cuba. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, a you know, that's not unique to Apache history. There's, I think, um, in the Caribbean now, a, a resurgence of, of indigenous identities that's really interesting, where new awareness of these histories of displacement and forced migration have played a role in people trying to make sense of their own identities um, in these places as being, you know, having mixed ancestry, indigenous and uh, Hispanic uh, and African ancestry. Um, for kind of people that have you know, always identified as Inde or Apache and have continued to do that despite forced migrations. I think there are also really important legacies, you know, so, um, uh, you know, in the present day, for example, you know, um, descendants of Chiricahua Apaches that were interned by the United States as, as prisoners of war um, live, um, well, in states all across the country, but um, also, you know, they're, they're, um, Tribal communities are uh, are around Fort Sill, Oklahoma, as well as then at the Mescalero Reservation um, in New Mexico, um, and that separation of Chiricahua people has been very important in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, yeah, you know, there's a I talk a little bit in uh, at the end of my book um, about um, uh, efforts by Apaches to 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 get reparations for the, from the US government for what they viewed as their wrongful internment as prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. And those mm -hmm. efforts very much ran into trouble in part because Apache communities were divided um, across distance by 
these U- past U.S. policies of internment and forced migration. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I think in the present, there's very much still, you know, so even though, you know, I, I don't think the word diaspora is used much. I haven't heard it used among contemporary Apaches too much, um, but they do describe, you know, its effects in a lot of ways in terms of mm-hmm. um, some of the challenges they've faced um, in organizing uh, across different tribal communities. Um, also in, in their own understandings of, you know, their, their history. So um, there've been multiple um, uh, trips organized by Apaches to return to these sites of displacement. Um, I think we can think of these almost as kind of like pilgrimages. So they've organized trips from Mescalero uh, Nation down into Mexico to be, visit sites that were important in their people's history. Um, and there have also been trips they've organized um, to visit sites in which their ancestors were interned uh, by the mm-hmm. United States. Um, and I think that signals how, you know, this these dia- this diaspora, these forced migrations, they view as having been an important part of their past and telling something about the struggles of their ancestors, the perseverance of their ancestors, um, and in turn, helping them understand what it means for them to be Apache in the present. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for all your explanations, Paul. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, do you have any ongoing projects? Yeah, so I'm, I am, I'm working on... Um, I'm working on a project now that does that comes out of um, comes out of my book. Um, it comes out of actually a little, some of what I was just talking about. Um, so um, I'm I'm really interested in the role that um, alumni of U.S. boarding schools played uh, within their own communities. Um, so mm. uh, there's um, this generation uh, in the late. Uh, 1800s and early 1900s uh, that, you know, went to boarding school, you know, far from their communities, especially at um, institutions like the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, and which mm-hmm. is in Pennsylvania, and the Hampton Institute, which was in Virginia. Um, and there's two um, Chiricahua Apache men that I have a lot of information about that both experienced um, the boarding school system and, you know, became literate, uh, uh, and then returned back to their community and um, played a really interesting role as kind of interpreters um, in multiple senses of the word. So uh, they um, they both are literally employed as interpreters, kind of drawing upon their linguistic skills and the fact that they're bilingual in Apache and English and literate. Um, and so they help with legal work and so on. Um, but they also both become informants to... Um, scholars, uh, anthropologists, linguists, and um, are really influential in shaping those scholars' sense of Apache culture and history. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm, I'm working on developing a book project that would kind of follow these two men. Um, one of them is named Sam Kanoy. Uh, the other is, mm-hmm. uh, I think, a little bit better known figure um, uh, named uh, Ace or Asa de Kluge. Uh, he's mm-hmm. famous for having served as the interpreter for Geronimo's autobiography. Um, right. so I'm interested in, in a fo- use, following these two men as a way of thinking about um, Apache history in the 20th century and, um, and you know, the role of boarding school alum- alumni within their communities and also 
um, in shaping understandings of their community to outsiders, especially uh, through their role as informants to anthropologists and scholars. So that's what's next. We'll see. <laughs> Sounds like a, a terrific project and actually one in which you will be able to use uh, sources produced by the many more sources produced by the natives themselves, right? Yes. Um, so part of it, I think, will be, um, yeah, part of it is that there's a lot of sources from these individuals in terms of, mm -hmm. of correspondence and so on. I'm also hoping to, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, have more, um, more perspective from their descendants as well. Um, mm -hmm. That's always an interesting, you know, I, I've, um, I've, you know, I, I've, begun those conversations. Uh, it's it's always interesting what uh, we as scholars might think is important versus what community members right. think is important. <laughs> so right, right. Uh, initially, there's been a little bit less excitement about, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, why do you, you know, this, that's so long ago. That's what I, one uh, contact I have said, you know, why do you care about, you know, these that's more than a hundred years ago now. Well, that doesn't, that's not what matters to us. <laughs> so uh, we'll see. Uh, but, um, but yes, there's a lot of, um, part of the appeal is, you know, being able to write about people where we have a lot of information in their own words and from their own point of view. All right, Paul. It has been a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, it's almost an hour now. Thank you very much for sharing with the audience of New Books Network some of the nuances of your book and good, good luck with your projects. Uh, I look forward to interviewing you again soon, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you so much. It was uh, thanks to listeners for uh, giving me the opportunity to to share with them. And uh, thanks to you, Joaquin, for uh, for holding this interview and for all your all your really insightful questions. And to all of you, many thanks for listening to New Books Network. Kindest regards, and I'll say goodbye for the present. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.